Welcome to the Change Management Review Podcast, where we bring the best of change management to you. In this Meet the Expert episode, Change Management Review Editor-in-Chief Teresa Moulton interviews Dr. Michael Kanick, author of Ruthless Consistency, How Committed Leaders Execute Strategy, Implement Change, and Build Organizations That Win, on the topic of insights that you can use to radically improve your organization. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Change Management Review Podcast. This is Teresa Moulton, Editor-in-Chief, and we're really happy to uh, invite Michael Kanick uh, to talk about his book, Ruthless Consistency, How Committed Leaders Execute Strategy, Implement Change, and Build Organizations That Win. His new book's coming out in September, uh, September 1st, actually, of this year. And uh, he has posted over 400 blogs on this topic. So let me tell you a little bit about Michael. Michael is also the president of Making Strategy Happen, a consulting firm that helps committed leaders turn ambition into strategy and strategy into reality. For the past 20 years, he has instituted the structure and discipline of his strategic management system in organizations across North America. Previously, he managed the consulting division at the Atlantic Consulting Group, and prior to that, held a leadership role at FedEx. Michael earned a PhD in the psychology of human performance from the University of British Columbia. A formal national championship winning college football coach, he is also a member of Marshall Goldsmith's 100 Coaches Global Initiative. Michael splits his time between Denver and Vancouver. So without further ado, welcome Michael. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Teresa. Yeah, really excited about um, your your topic of ruthless consistency because as a management consultant myself, I find that having leadership be consistent is 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 almost an oxymoron itself. <laughs> so, what, what I'd love to um, do is just you know hear a little bit about what your book is um, focusing on and what it means and why you think it's really important. Good. Thank you. Yes. The, the genesis of the book was that strategic change is hard. We all know that. We've got good intentions, good ideas. The execution is the hard part. And I experienced this firsthand in my corporate life with FedEx and then through my consulting work. So the question is, why is it so hard to execute strategic change? So over the years, we put together a model that looks at, you know, what undermines strategic change? What causes it to fail? And the number one thing that causes strategic change to fail, Teresa, is leaders being inconsistent. Their decisions and their actions not being relentlessly aligned with their intentions. And they may think they are, they may say they are, but typically it's somewhere along the line, they say one thing, but do another. It Mm -hmm. sends a mixed message to people. It undermines strategic change. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Um, It's so important to be consistent. Uh, And it sounds simple, but why do you think it's not simple? Well, because it's every, everything that touches an employee, you know, sends a message. So everything a leader says, a leader does, what a leader sa- doesn't do and doesn't say when they don't reinforce people for good things they do, when they don't hold people constructively accountable, everything sends a message. So there are a lot of moving parts and the trap we fall into is, well, train them and teach them, you know, train them and teach them or tell them and train them, right? But that's not good enough. And when I started with FedEx uh, in a role of uh, to implement service quality mm. as a systematized thing throughout you know, uh, my district, one of the first things I did was not to run off and push people through training or get people into teams, but I wanted to look at all the companies that had been through this knowing that many had failed. So I, I wanted to find what were the common elements of success. 
So I started with training. Well, maybe the companies that were successful just provided more training or better training or just-in-time training. Well, no, that wasn't it. Then I thought, well, maybe it's communications, those who consistently communicated the message. Maybe those were the companies that were successful, but no. Then I thought, well, maybe resources. If you gave sufficient resources, that would do it. Well, it turned out some of the companies that threw the most resources at it had the biggest failures. Mm. You know? Then I thought, well, is it measures? Is it incentives? What I came, the conclusion I came to was that there was nothing that correlated with success, nothing that could readily correlate with success. I was at a dead end and I thought, well, how can that be? Isn't there something that correlates with success? And then the light bulb came on. No, there isn't anything, it's everything. Mm. Everything you do sends a message. Everything has to point people in the right direction. All the arrows have to be consistently aligned. And while I researched the companies that were successful, everything was aligned. What they communicated, the expectations, the goals, the training, the resources, the incentives, the processes, the, the measures, the uh, uh, accountability, everything was consistently with, aligned with what they intended to achieve. It was ruthless consistency. Yeah, that's really important. Um, when you are looking for ruthless consistency in, in a company, um, what are some of the behaviors that uh, you see people do consistently? That they do consistently well? or, yeah, or not? Well, consistently, oh, sorry, consistently with the actual goals and the, and the strategy and the communications. Right. So, for example, if it's, we're saying this is what we want to achieve, and we've done this with innovation initiatives, with customer service initiatives, and this is what we want to achieve. So, first of all, do people understand how the purpose of what a company ties to goals and expectations? Mm -hmm. So, today we spend a lot of time talking about purpose, very important. But mm -hmm. where we drop the ball, Teresa, is we don't always connect the dots between purpose, goals, and what do we expect of you as an individual? Mm -hmm. If we don't do that, then yeah, I'm all on board with customer, excellent customer service. But what does that look like in my role? So we've got to make sure first we're connecting the dots between purpose, goals, and expectations. Mm -hmm. Then we need to make sure, and this is what is often overlooked, we need to remove the psychological disincentives to change. The reasons that good people, well-intentioned people, hardworking people may not want to change. Mm. And the num number one disincentive to change is not just that people resist change, it's they resist the unknown, uncertainty. Right. Will I like this? Won't I like this? Will I be good at it? Won't I be good at it? Will I be more secure in my job? Will I be less secure? All this uncertainty goes with change. So we have to overcome that disincentive to change. And the best way to do that is to over-communicate. Right. Over-communicate during times of change what we need to do, how we're going to do it, but most importantly, why? Right. Because what people are thinking is, well, this sounds good, but hey, why don't we just keep doing what we're doing? Why do we have to change? Why me? Why here? Why now? Why, 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 why? That's what they're thinking. Mm -hmm. So we've got to be able to say, you know, Teresa, you're probably wondering why we're making this big change. Well, let me tell you what our customers are telling us. Here's mm -hmm. what we're seeing from our competitors. If we don't change Teresa, we could be in big trouble. So here's what we've decided to do, and here's why. Now, here's what you can expect. Here's how we're going to roll it out. Here's how we're going to support you. Here are the tools we're going to provide you, and here's how we're going to work together to, to make this happen. 
the more you have those kinds of conversations, the what, the how, and importantly, the why, the more you can start to overcome that fear of the unknown. Yeah, I agree. And one of the things that um, I've seen happen a lot with putting together the case for change or the case for action um, on why we're going to change is that people uh, don't write it so that it brings in the customer view or the strategic elements. It's, it's you know, more from the middle of the uh, rationale down to the implementation. And I think what you said about making sure you have the full picture of uh, why it's important to change, you know, starting with the marketplace uh, is really critical. Absolutely. And, and, and this may, what I'm about to say now, may be the most foundational element of, of my approach to change. And that is the case for change, as you mentioned, is critical and documenting that. But here's what really gives it, you know, impetus. When we do a case for change, there are two statements. Mm -hmm. Here are the consequences, the pain of not changing. And here are the consequences, the benefits of changing. Mm -hmm. It's the pairing of pain and gain that most predicts human change. Because it's easy to say, well, if we do this, here's the benefit. Wow, that sounds good. But there's not the same impetus. In general, pain is a more reliable predictor of change than mm -hmm. just the pursuit of gain or pleasure, right? right. What we found is most successful is you couple the two statements. You, you have that contrast. You juxtapose the pain. Hey, if we don't do this, here's what we're going to suffer. Are we willing to accept that? No. And if we do accomplish it, if we do change, here's what we're going to gain. So it's the, the, the contrast of those two that makes the case for change so powerful. I agree. And I think also uh, sometimes, you know, people who are leading the change are so uh, all about adoption and kind of conceptually selling the change that that consequence statement isn't there. And, um, and it's not paired with the reason we should change. And I think it makes a huge difference in the overall messaging strategy for people. Right. And I can tell you when we're managing through these change initiatives, if it starts to bog down, starts to flounder a bit, all we have to do is review that case for change and look everybody in the eye and say, this is the consequence if we don't change. Is this acceptable? And um, I'll, I'll give you an example, if you like. Uh, we went through this with a company that had very common, they wanted to implement a CRM system and surprise, surprise, the salespeople were resisting. Okay. Mm. Who, could have, who could imagine that would happen? Right. Right? <laughs> right. Now, why? Is it because the salespeople are bad people? No, it's because salespeople like to sell. They want to be in front of the customer. They don't want to have to do the admin work. Right. So that's understandable. So to create the alignment with what we want to done, the consistency, we made sure, first of all, we selected a CRM system that was administratively unintensive. Mm -hmm. Something that wasn't going to take all sorts of time, easy to use, conceptual to use, and when we did that, we still really didn't get the whole involvement. So I had a conversation with the leadership team saying, how important is this to the business? Is this a nice mm -hmm. to do or is this a must do? Mm -hmm. And they tried to convince me it was a must do. And I kept pushing back until finally they made a very compelling case why it's a must do. Mm. My response is, if this is a must do, then we have to make sure that everything is aligned and we don't tolerate you know, it not getting done. So what we did, we changed the compensation for the salespeople. Mm -hmm. Yes, your commission is absolutely tied to revenue and margin. However, to qualify for your commission, you have to submit timely information at the CRM. And we defined what that looked like. Yeah. Okay? So that's a gateway. No timely submission, no commission. 
Well, what do you think happened? Of course, they, what well, you can't do, that's not right. So they complained. But you know what? When we showed there was no wiggle room, right? No crack in the door they could barge through. That's how it was going to be. They complained about it, but then they did it. And then the complaining stopped. And then it became, oh, this is part of just what we have to do here. That's how we got it implemented. Now, that's an example on the, you know, maybe a, a little tougher, you know, approach to it. But the truth is we aligned the incentives and the disincentives with, you know, entering timely information into the CRM. So yeah. these things can be done. Yes, I, I think that's a great, um, a great example. And, um, and then it also sounds like you were able to apply ruthless consistency to the messaging of those changes um, in terms of making it, you know, must, right. a must do. Exactly. So the communications, the messaging, right, was, it was consistent. The uh, incentive was cons consistent. The disincentive of not, you know, timely information was consistent. We made sure we listened to them and had a resource that, again, was administratively unintensive. We tried to make it as simple as possible. We didn't want them to get buried in, you know, administrative. Right. So we did that. We made sure there was not only training, but there was ongoing support they could access and refreshers. So we tried to make sure all the arrows were consistently pointed in the right direction. Yeah. And, you know, in your book, you also talk about to create the right environment, um, managers should also be coaches. Um, so are those some of the conversations and support that you're, you're talking about now? Exactly. And it's a key distinction because coaches take responsibility for the performance of their people. Coaches ask, what do I need to do? to create the right environment so my people will perform at their best. So with that in mind, we outline as coaches, you not only need to communicate purpose, goals, and expectations, you need to make sure they have the tools to be successful, which is training, which is skills, knowledge, resources, and authority. But then importantly, as a coach, you have to be able to provide feedback, mm -hmm. meaningful feedback and guidance, information, to help them improve. You have to be actively involved as a coach providing feedback and guidance and then reinforcing the good things that are done and then holding people constructively accountable for the things that aren't going well. And when you take that coaching mindset, unsurprisingly, much more gets accomplished and things change. Yes, that's great. Um, I think there's, there's a few different approaches to um, managers doing coaching and what you talked about I think is a very comprehensive one um, and often uh, people think of executive coaching as you know just processing and kind of like um, maybe building some skills but it's not necessarily it might be about positioning in the organization it might be about you know your reputation and brand but not necessarily how you provide it to managers who really are stuck in the middle and need that support. So. Absolutely. We have to coach the coaches. We have to and coach what I'm talking about is a little different from the idea of executive coaching, which is often a, a, a process to for guided discovery or self-discovery. Right. You know, this is more in the traditional sense of coaching where you're providing everything from the front end, you know, expectations and goals uh, yeah. to the feedback and guidance and, and really reinforcing with consequences. I mean, positive consequences is in reinforcement mm -hmm. and then constructive accountability as well. So this is a very active, supportive coaching with the mindset being the coach is taking a role, taking a responsibility in the performance of his or her people. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And can you explain why you emphasize holding people constructively accountable? 
Yes, I think managers struggle with this. We all know that people struggle holding people accountable. Now, why? It's uncomfortable. It's, it's maybe confrontation. It's emotionally not, not a positive thing. So I think, Teresa, we have to reframe how we think about accountability. Mm-hmm. The purpose of holding accountable isn't to, to bully them, to berate them, to belittle them. The purpose is what? It's to help people improve, grow, perform better. So the intentions of accountability are very positive. So it starts with the languaging, and I like to call it constructive accountability Mm. because this is a constructive process. It's it's not a destructive process. This is a constructive process. If we don't hold people constructively accountable, they don't have the opportunity to improve. So first of all, there's a mindset around that. And the, the conversation isn't, well, Teresa, you did a poor job at this, or that wasn't very good, or you know, this is a real problem. The, you know, the discussion starts with, number one, hey, Teresa, here's our common purpose. Here's what we're trying to accomplish, mm-hmm. right? Now, let's confront reality in a constructive way. Here's what we're observing. Now, let's you and I talk about this as colleagues. Let's mm-hmm. drill down and understand what's going on. Why is it happening? What are the contributing factors? Mm-hmm. You know, and let's really dr- drill into this as colleagues. But then the key question is then me as the coach, I then say to you, okay, Teresa, we've got that understanding how can I help support you? Mm-hmm. What do you need from me to help you be successful? Mm-hmm. And when you ask that question, you, you disarm the person. You put them at ease. Mm-hmm. You open the door to having a real conversation about performance. I'm not saying you're a bad person, you're a failure. I'm saying, what do you need from me? Mm-hmm. And this opens the door to that conversation. Now, some people, of course, will say, well, I need all these things to be successful. Well, you as the coach get to decide, is that a reasonable request or not? Mm-hmm. But often they will highlight something that maybe you haven't done that would legitimately help them be successful. Right. And, you know, as you were talking there, Michael, I was thinking, you know, how important contracting is to have these conversations up front, you know, in terms of expectation management and really letting people know the constructive part of it um, so that it's not seen as a, you know, personal improvement plan conversation. Exactly. And then the step, of course, after you offer your support, then you have to state your expectations. This is the, the other part of the contracting part you're mentioning, where now you know specifically what I expect of you. And the mistake many of us make here is we give them fuzzy expectations. Mm. You know, like, oh, this has got to get better. We need to see some improvement. Well, maybe Teresa comes back in six months and saying, hey, we're improving. We're only off plan by... 18%, not 20%. <laughs> you know, yes. Is that good enough? So clear expectations are what do you expect by when? What by when? Mm-hmm. Teresa, my expectation is your department will be back on plan within 90 days. So clear <laughs> expectations. Right. Uh, so that's part of the constructive accountability process. You know, making sure we're aligned. And of course, the what seals it all is follow-up. Too often we have these conversations, then, oh, thank goodness that's over. Now I can get back to work. There has to be a committed follow-up. So, Teresa, you know my expectation. Let's you and I meet every couple of weeks just to keep the spotlight on this. Mm-hmm. You know, 10, 15 minutes, get your calendar out now. Let's block off time two weeks from now where you and I cycle back. Mm-hmm. That's what happens at every meeting. That's constructive accountability. Yeah, I think that's nice. And I think it also demonstrates to the person that you as the leader are willing to invest your time in them. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a joint. We both have responsibility. My responsibility is to create an environment that gives them a fair chance to succeed. Their responsibility is to perform. Right. So 
um, as you were speaking, you know, I was thinking um, what the key to success is when a leader acts with ruthless consistency. And it seems to be that it's this whole valuing people and really having authentic conversations. Um, are there other components of, of ruthless consistency that you think add the most value to a leader? Right. So the model we have looks at five things, uh, align, uh, equip, coach, support, and value. And just to uh, quickly touch on them, the align piece means aligning the purpose, goals, and expectations I mentioned. Aligning the disincentives, so maybe taking away those disincentives like the fear of the unknown, but aligning the incentives as well, the psychological incentives that speak to valuing people. So if we can tie the change into something that ties to their identity, Teresa, Mm. Something that's going to make them feel, I'm doing something meaningful. I'm making a contribution. I, I'm a part of the team. I belong to something I believe in. If mm-hmm. we can tap into those psychological incentives, that's even more powerful. So we have to align. Now, the equipping are the, you know, the skills, the resources, the authority, the coaching, as I mentioned, the feedback and guidance, the reinforcement and accountability. Then we have to design our organization to support them, which means do we have the right processes in place, the right policies, the right org structure and infrastructure, because those things misaligned can frustrate the heck out of people. So we have to make sure, you know, are, have we designed processes? If, if we haven't placed bad processes, it will frustrate people because, hey, they want to do a good job of servicing the customer, but our dumb process or policy is keeping them from doing it. So we want to make sure we're designing our organizations to support them. The final piece is, are we valuing them? Are we valuing them as human beings? And that means respect, trust, and caring. Mm -hmm. When people feel that you fundamentally respect them, you trust them, and that you care about them as an individual, Mm -hmm. that amplifies the benefits of everything else you're doing. It amplifies the engagement. On the other hand, if they feel you don't respect them, you don't trust them, you don't care about them as an individual, obviously that really diminishes their commitment. And, and I will admit, it took me some time to learn as a manager that you know, while you hire employees, human beings show up to work mm-hmm. with their hopes, their fears, their securities, their insecurities, and you'd better be attuned to those things as a leader, otherwise you might be demotivating your people. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you write a lot about um, how commitment is what drives everything. Wouldn't every leader say that they're committed? Absolutely. Every leader does say they're committed. And uh, when I'm giving presentations, that's the first question I ask. How committed are you to winning? Mm. Everyone says 100%, very committed, all in. Well, at the end of the presentation, the looks are a lot more sheepish. Because I like to talk about what real commitment looks like. Mm-hmm. And for example, in the book, I give the example of uh, Lindsey Vaughn, who has won more World Cup ski races than any woman in history by far, and talk about what was her level of commitment. Mm-hmm. Well, it was off the charts compared to her competitors. So even at a young age, they talked about how she had skied more, you know, tens of thousands more slalom gates than any of her, her peers. Mm. As a skier on the World Cup circuit, talked about how her training regimen year round five to six hours a day, year round, just in training. You know, Mm. not just ski training, but strength training, you know, skill Mm. training, other things, right? So her commitment to this was extreme. Even when she became a world champion, there was no complacency, no let up. Even when she had injuries, broken bones, uh, ligaments, 
concussions, everything else. Her commitment was just, was extreme. Mm-hmm. But that's a good example of what true commitment looks like. So, you know, the takeaway for leaders is don't thump your chest and say how committed you are when you've only done a fraction of what's possible. Right. And, and I think that comes back to authenticity. Yes, yes. Because, well, it's also self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Because I do think leaders legitimately think I'm very committed. But we have to give them a benchmark of what true commitment looks like. So if you're truly committed to organizational change, here's what it means in terms of doing all these things. Are you prepared to do that? Are you willing to do what you may not like to do or want to do, but knowing that you need to do to implement change? I agree. And how do you help leaders um, learn how to be ruthlessly commitment committed, I guess? Right. Well, first, by pointing out the inconsistencies, nobody likes to be shown that they're inconsistent. Got it. So one of the things I'll, <laughs> I'll challenge leaders on is, well, hold on, you said this was really important, but you tolerated that. Is that, is that being consistent? How right. do you think your people are responding? You know, you talk about flying to the moon, but you won't invest in the rocket. Well, what are we supposed <laughs> to do? Jump up and down until we reach the moon? So by pointing out the inconsistencies, uh, let spotlights for them what commitment is needed to, to make it happen. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. And back to the title of the book, why did you choose Ruthless? Um, that sounds kind of harsh. <laughs> yes, it does sound kind of harsh. Well, what I mean by Ruthless isn't cruel or cold-hearted. What I mean by Ruthless is an unwavering commitment. Mm-hmm. An unwavering commitment. So this is not a, a nice-to-do, a should-do, uh, a could-do. Ruthless means your commitment to being consistent is absolutely unwavering. And Mm -hmm. people will feed off of that. People will read into that. So you as a leader are on stage 24-7. They are reading meaning into everything you say, everything you do. If those messages aren't consistent, boom, they're on it. People are bloodhounds for inconsistency. They'll pick up on it in a heartbeat. Yeah, I know. I've had a situation with a client where uh, they are announcing a project and the CEO said, and there will be no job loss but we're going to re-engineer, you know, the entire back end of the company. And I'm standing there like, you know, as the change, the lead change consultant, like, you know, oh no, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> you know, because it's like, okay, let's, uh, let's talk about not changing at all oh, yeah. in order to meet that expectation. <laughs> um, so you have a PhD in the psychology of human performance and you helped coach a college football team to a national championship how did those experiences help shape your views? Well, it's, it's amazing. They've had a huge impact. And so on the academic side, the psychology of human performance had to do with, you know, how do you support performance and performance improvement? Mm-hmm. And what I really came to appreciate was this, this, this issue of incentives and disincentives. Mm. And when we say incentives in business, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Money, right? Money, yep. Right, right. But I say, no, think of the psychological incentives. What are the Mm -hmm. psychological reasons people might want to change or might not want to change, right? The incentives and disincentives. So what I really learned is that most human behavior isn't a result of money. And others have talked about this in books. Uh, I know Daniel Pink talked about that Mm -hmm. in the book Drive, for example. But are we doing things that we feel good about what we're doing, good about ourselves? Do we feel like there's a purpose, there's a meaning, we belong, we've got control over our environment? So the academic side really helped me with tapping into the psychological incentives that would lead people to change or the disincentives, the fears 
that mm. might cause them not to change. Fear of the unknown, fear of looking bad, fear of looking stupid, fear of not being accepted by my peers. All those fears we have to be able to address. Yeah, and you know, just from my experience uh, working with change management professionals, one of the biggest challenges is to uh, make sure that you are planning and and um, executing on behavior change, not just communications. Right, exactly, because behavior change is what really is at the root of a lot a lot of this. Yes, and as, as a coach, I'll tell you. What was great about the coaching experience, Teresa, is you have a group of people who are intensely focused on a common goal, mm -hmm. intensely focused on a common goal. And you don't always get that in business. So, you know, working towards what it took to win a national championship, seeing everything that had to be aligned, every detail, mm. everything was considered as coaches. We spent time, well, what would happen if this? Just as mm -hmm. one quick example, and this is common, but we would watch, you know, game film, you know, every evening of the team we're going to play. Once we finished a game, we would watch game film. We would come in Sunday morning at 6 a.m. to watch the video of the game we just played the day before. We would grade every single player on every single play to help determine what they needed to focus on the next week. That was right. the information for feedback and guidance to help drive improvement. So there are, Coaches at a competitive level are very detailed. Mm. And it's not just game day. You know, what, what do we view? We view the game on TV. We don't know all those details, all that effort that went on behind the scenes. So the coaching really helped me appreciate and understand if we're going to create change individually or as an organization, as a team, we really have to make sure everything is considered, everything is aligned with what we intend to achieve. Yeah, I agree. I think it's interesting that, you know, the point you made about uh, coaches being really detailed, um, because that's really what we need to take away for leaders. Often they're not detailed enough. Right. And, you know, it's not that a CEO necessarily has to be detailed, but her or his number two the right. know, person has to be. So it's okay if you're not that person as a CEO, but you better have somebody as your number two who meets that so that you complement each other and can drive change forward. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. So what is the first thing that a leader can do to become ruthlessly consistent? <laughs> well, look in the mirror. Look in mm. the mirror and just be very honest with yourself. How committed am I to change? Mm. And there's no wrong answer here, but you can say, well, this is a must do or it's a should do or it's a could do. And if it's a could do, hold it to a different standard. Mm -hmm. But if it is a must do, then ask yourself, what do we need to do to make it happen? And am I willing to do that? Mm -hmm. Because another coaching lesson I'll, I, I hold very close, Teresa, is there is a big difference between the will to win mm -hmm. and the will to do what it takes to win. Mm -hmm. And you'd better understand that difference. Everybody says they wanna win, it feels good to win. Are we willing to do what it takes? The daily, detailed, disciplined application of all the right things that support whatever winning, whatever change looks like. I think we have to be very self-reflective as leaders and say, am I willing to do what it takes to win? Right. And if you look in the mirror and you find out by surprise that you're not, what, then you better get an executive coach. Yeah, yeah. If you're not the person, then you better have that you know, number two person who can drive that, who is willing to do what it takes. Or, right. or like you say, you better get a coach and say, help me reconcile. I really want this to happen, but I either don't know or maybe, you know, have some fears myself about what it takes. 
Here's an example. I, it's not uncommon for me to come across a CEO who apparently is very committed, but I've got a long-term employee who's just not on board with this and mm. I just can't bear to deal with it. What do I do? Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I'm not saying, well, you know, too bad, fire them and that's that. But what we don't want to do is set up a situation where we send mixed messages. So maybe that person goes into a different role, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe they're removed from having an influence over this project or something where at least we're not sending a mixed message around it, right? right. So if we want to influence change, you know, if we want to in in implement a uh, culture of innovation, well, maybe a top person isn't particularly innovative. Well, maybe we get them in a role where it doesn't depend on innovation. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's something where they need to execute. And there are roles where we need to execute consistently. Just, you know, the same processes need to be done consistently all the time. Mm -hmm. So maybe we put that person in a role where they're not being forced to in innovate when they can't innovate mm -hmm. and we're not willing to, you know, uh, let the person go. And that's okay. We just don't want to send mixed messages to people. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And sometimes I think um, executives, you know, do try to please the person who's worked with them for so long. And, and in fact, they're setting them up for a real challenge and maybe even failure by not making that move. Yes. And the bigger cost, though, is the message it sends to everyone else. Mm -hmm. That's the number one reason you hold people constructively accountable because of everyone else. Because if you don't, what everyone else says is, hey, why aren't you, why aren't you holding a person accountable? Or I bought into this. Why are you doing this? Then they conclude, Hey, maybe I shouldn't work so hard. Maybe I don't need to change if that other person doesn't need to change. Mm, and I mean, that's, when, that's when a leader kills their credibility. They demotivate their people and they undermine change. Yeah. Yeah. Because everybody else is watching and they, and they can understand Absolutely. it. Absolutely. You know, and they're on board and then, Hey, how come this person's getting away with this? And then why aren't you as a leader doing anything? So that's the real cost is that we undermine all the people who want to move forward with change. Right. It's true. It really is true. So this, this conversation, Michael, has really helped me um, get a feel for what you mean by ruthless consistency. And, you know, I'm really excited that we were able to have this conversation. Um, one of the questions I have for you as we wrap down here is, who do you think will benefit most from the book? Well, first of all, CEOs of, you know, companies that are committed to executing strategy and implementing change, building organizations that win, which is why I put that in the subtitle. Mm -hmm. So if you're serious about change, you're serious about executing strategy, you know, this will give you the framework to do that. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, that trickles down to leaders in organizations at any level. Mm -hmm. But also, as you mentioned earlier, whether it's people, it might be change management consultants, it might be stri mm -hmm. strategic management consultants. I also think, you know, business school profs who teach in this area would find this a very relevant offering to, uh, to B-School uh, courses as well. Oh, that's a good idea. I think so as well. I think that, and it's, it's one of those um, ideas and concepts that you've made uh, implementable and, and very tangible. So I think... Right. I think, you know, sometimes um, those types of books are very helpful when you're in B-School, at least from my experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, great. So um, the name of the book is Ruthless Consistency, How Committed Leaders Execute Strategy, Implement Change, and Build Organizations That Win. The book comes out on September 1st, 2020 from McGraw-Hill. And I'm assuming, Michael, that it'll be available on Amazon. 
Yes, it will. Yes, it will be available on Amazon, so you can get it there. You can also go to ruthlessconsistency.com, and uh, you will be able to access uh, and order the book through there. So absolutely. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on our uh, podcast. It was really, you know, a thrill talking to you and hearing about all your experience and motivating commentary and, you know, all the thought you've put into this. Well, I appreciate that. No, great to be here. Really enjoy the opportunity to do this. Uh, thanks so much, Teresa. You're welcome. We hope you've enjoyed this Meet the Expert episode of the Change Management Review podcast with Teresa Moulton, Editor-in-Chief of the Change Management Review and Michael Kanick. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and like us on LinkedIn.